want to uh, carry on now with the reading and proclaiming of God's Word. And um, we're covering the same passage uh, this week um, that we did last week. But last week, um, we talked about marriage primarily from a um, husband's perspective. And this week, we're going to be speaking about it from a wife's perspective. And um, we actually have an extended passage, a longer passage this week, in order to make some helpful comparisons along the way. But we are, we are only talking about marriage this week, and then the rest of the passage around other aspects in the household will be after I return. We'll talk through that as well. But let's uh, give our attention to the reading of God's Word. A reading from Ephesians 5:21 through 6, 9. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as with their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the one and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we're grateful for your word, and we beg you that you would help us to understand it. 
And by your Spirit, please apply it uh, to our hearts and to our lives. We pray that people uh, would see in us uh, love for you because we are loved by you. And and that animates our lives and changes us and frees us to give ourselves away for others. Please do this among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In uh, the May 1955 Housekeeping Monthly magazine, there was an article entitled, The Good Wife's Guide, with a number of suggestions of how to be a good wife. It gives a list of do's and don'ts. On the do's side, wives should, one, have dinner ready. Plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious meal ready on time for his return. This is a way of letting him know that you have been thinking about him and are concerned about his needs. Two, prepare yourself. Take 15 minutes to rest so you'll be refreshed when he arrives. Touch up your makeup, put a ribbon in your hair, and be fresh-looking. He's just been with a lot of work-weary people. Three, clear away the clutter. Make one last trip through the main part of the house just before your husband arrives. Gather up school books, toys, paper, etc. Then run a dust cloth over the tables. Four, prepare the children. Take a few minutes to wash the children's hands and faces. If they're small, comb their hair, and if necessary, change their clothes. Now, you might have noticed that these four to-dos having dinner ready, getting yourself pretty, tidying up the house, getting the kids ready. They were all seemingly supposed to happen simultaneously, right? Fifteen minutes before the husband arrives. There are also some don'ts. Don't greet him with complaints and problems. You may have a dozen important things to tell him, but the moment of his arrival is not the time. Let him talk first. Remember, his topics of conversation are more important than yours. Two, don't complain if he's late home for dinner or even if he stays out all night. Count this as minor compared to what he might have gone through that day. Three, don't ask him questions about his actions or question his judgment of integrity. Remember, he is the master of the house and as such will always exercise his will with fairness and truthfulness. You have no right to question him. Now, I think most of us find this list of do's and don'ts to be offensive and absurd. But when you hear Scripture say, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, you might wonder if the Bible is affirming this picture of the ideal 1950s housewife. And I would say no, because here in this article we see husband and wife differentiated by values like relative importance who rules, and who has rights. These are not ideas found in the biblical description of marriage. Now, we looked at this passage last week, and we focused on husbands and headship because that's actually what the passage focuses on. We saw that headship does not mean domination or rule. Rather, it means love, unity, and responsibility fleshed out by a husband dying for his wife daily, dying to his preferences and agendas, that he might bring his wife flourishing. We didn't talk about roles in marriage because this passage doesn't talk about roles in marriage. But if there was a defining role for a husband, we said that it would be to die first. Today, we are discussing wives and submission. 
And if you weren't here last week or didn't listen online to last week's sermon, then this might sound unbalanced. So please listen to last week's sermon online before drawing any final conclusions about what I say here this morning. I will repeat what I said last week, that this passage and others like it have been misused and misapplied to diminish women, their value, and their gifts, and to create sinful power dynamics in marriages. And I think being faithful to Scripture actually corrects these distortions. But because there's been misunderstandings, we're going to have to spend more time than normal on explaining and some of the technical details here so that we might understand the passage correctly, using it to bring flourishing to our marriages. There's going to be more teaching here than preaching. So I'd ask you to bear with me as we go through it. Today, we're talking about the dreaded S-word, submission. What does it mean? What does it look like? How is it done? So first, what does submission mean? What does submission mean in this context? And it's hard to say specifically because Paul isn't outlining specific roles. I can tell you one thing it doesn't mean. In this context, it doesn't mean obey. Because when Paul addresses children and slaves in the next paragraph, right, in in, uh, verse 1 of chapter 6 and verse 5, he tells them both to obey. He uses an active verb, an imperative, obey, listen to. And he doesn't use that term for wives. So there's a distinction. The Bible does not say wives are to obey their husbands. And it's incredibly important we see this clearly. Wives are not to be treated like children or servants, nor are they expected to respond to their husbands as if they were. Whatever submission means, it doesn't mean thoughtless, blind obedience. Nor is this passage talking about gender relations generally. This does not say every woman submit to every man. This is wives submit to their own husbands And that word own there in the Greek is emphasized. It's specific. Your unique husband. This is a discussion about marriage, not gender. Something that is missing in the original Greek in this passage is the word submission next to the word wife. The prior context of the passage is that Christians are to be filled with the Spirit, speaking, singing, giving thanks. And then we get to verse 21. Everyone submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then Paul writes in the original Greek, wives, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. In verse 24, Paul writes, now as the church submits to Christ, also wives to husbands in everything. Our English translations are correct to apply the command of submit to wives. It's a legitimate translation, but the fact is that it is assumed rather than stated suggests a certain amount of ambivalence from Paul. And we'll see that ambivalence later in the passage as well. So because the command is borrowed from verse 21, that is the commanding thought for the passage. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does that mean? Well, similar things are said throughout the New Testament, that we are to serve one another. Elsewhere in Philippians, Paul says says to the church there, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is getting at what submission means here. 
Technically, it means to be ordered under. Paul writes it in what's called the middle voice, so it acts like a reflexive verb, saying something like, therefore, submit yourselves, not make others submit, not be made to submit, but submit yourselves. Have a spirit of deference and submission toward one another. And remember, this is first spoken to the whole church, to everyone. And so that's the feel of the word as it gets applied to wives, even though it's technically absent in that sentence. Wives, on their own, by their free choice, are to take on a humble and submissive spirit toward their husbands, which is something radical to say in the first century. There's a world of difference between telling husbands to see that their wives submit to them, and that that was the standard advice in the ancient world, versus wives freely choosing to submit or have a submissive attitude. Paul was saying something revolutionary by speaking to wives as free moral agents. One of my pastor friends said it this way, rightly understood, the submission that wives give their husbands is not a duty that is coerced, but a gift that is freely offered, which means the submission of a wife to her husband is something she gives him, not something he claims for himself, as if it were his right or his due. The submission of a wife to her husband, rightly understood, does no violence to her dignity or her agency. Indeed, if dignity is somehow removed in any way from the submission a wife gives to her husband, then you don't have submission. You have something else, something which the Bible doesn't teach at all. Well, Bob, then what is submission in this context, in the context of marriage? Well, this is what I said last week about husbands. As head... A husband's needs and preferences are secondary to his wife's. In every matter, he puts her needs and preferences first. How to spend money, how to divvy up domestic duties, whose career gets focused, what to watch on TV, so on and so forth. So forth. This isn't about a husband slavishly caving to every wish and demand of his wife. But there's a re- when there's a real difference of preference, opinion, there's limited resources to be deployed, the husband, as head, puts himself last. Now, again, what does submission mean? Take what I said last week and exchange husband and wife for each other. The wife makes her needs and preferences secondary. The wife counts herself last and defers to her husband's wishes and wisdom. And that doesn't sound good. Submission feels like death. It is death to self. So wives are to die for their husbands in submission in the same way that husbands are to die for their wives in love. Dying in love or submission are both free gifts given to the other, for the other's good and the good of the union. So it is not only the husband who wakes up wondering how he can and will die for his wife today. The wife wakes up wondering the same thing. How will I die for my husband? So biblical marriage becomes this beautiful race to the bottom, where each spouse is trying to outserve the other. Each spouse is trying to glorify the other. And it turns into a dance of deference and love, which is how the early church fathers described the relationship within the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, a dance of deference and love. See, the Trinity helps us understand biblical marriage. In marriage, the husband plays the role of Christ, and the wife plays the role of saved humanity. The husband is the head, the wife is the body. One loves, the other submits. And that can sound unfair or sound like a difference in value. 
But everyone needs to hear this. Jesus does both. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes that the head of a wife is her husband and that the head of Christ is God. So Jesus is both head and has a head. More importantly, Jesus knows what it is to submit to a head. Jesus came doing everything in the name of and for the glory of his father, his head, in order to save his bride, his body. No angel or human has freely submitted like Jesus has, who himself is God the Son. He submitted to death when he didn't have to, death by torture on a cross, facing the dereliction of hell. No one has freely submitted to the depths of hell, but Jesus has. And Jesus, as God the Son, is equal to the Father. All things were created to, through, by, and for the Son. He is, he is the exact image and representation of the Father. All the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. I and my Father are one, Jesus says. So to believe that submission freely offered in marriage somehow diminishes or devalues the person submitting is to lose the Trinity. Submission is woven into the Godhead. So because Jesus does it, submission as it is commanded here cannot mean diminishment or less value. And unfortunately, that might be what women have heard in this passage or how it's been taught to them. That being a godly woman or wife is to diminish or sort of fade away into the background. Because you're a woman or a wife, your desires must be suppressed Your dreams must be put on hold. Your gifts must be held in check. But that is not what this passage or any passage teaches in the Bible. The call to submit yourself to your husband is not a call to diminish. Rather, it is a call to flourish. No human man or woman flourishes without giving their lives away in love as they follow Jesus. Wives and husbands dying for each other is about their flourishing. Submission is not a call to suppress your desires, but a call in the context of marriage in partnership with your husband to take the risk of knowing and pursuing your desires. It's not a call to forget your dreams, but to remember them and even dream them again together. It's not a call to hide your gifts, but to use and develop them in the service of God, both husband and wife together as you dance this dance of mutual deference and love. And this is clear from reading Scripture, that submission is not about diminishing women. Its pages are filled with courageous and bold women like Sarah, Zipporah, Miriam, Rahab, Deborah, Ruth. Stories of women like Abigail, who was willing to challenge and rebuke King David. Stories of women like Tamar, who got justice from her father-in-law and was declared righteous. Stories of women like Mary, the mother of Jesus, or Mary Magdalene, the one who Jesus appeared to first after he rose from the dead. Stories of women like Lydia, the first convert in Asia, and probably the one who bankrolled the Philippian church. In each of these women, we see submission rightly offered, but also desires pursued, and dreams dreamed, and gifts offered, and used in the service of God. For the time I have, that's as far as I can go with what does submission mean here. So another question is, then, what does it look like? What does this look like on a daily basis? And again, that's that's hard to say. Paul is describing, Paul is not describing roles, right? Because roles are heavily dependent on the particular culture, 
and the particular economic and family situation. This passage is describing postures of husband and wife toward each other. And when husband and wife are living into these words, they can mutually decide on roles that lead to each other's flourishing. So roles will change, but these postures remain. By using the analogy of Jesus and the church, Paul is calling husbands to be the proactive initiator of self-giving and self-sacrificing love. It can feel like death to the husband. The wife receives that initiatory love like the body of Christ and responds to her husband out of love with submission, which can also feel like death. In this kind of marriage, both parties feel safe to love, to risk, to grow. If both, love and, and if both submission and love look functionally the same, dying to self, why is there a distinction? Why use different words? And this is my educated guess. I think it has to do with typical sin patterns in marriage. The antidote to a husband's sin of authoritarianism or abdication is love. The antidote to a wife's sin of wanting to dominate and control is submission. Let me explain. Paul is saying that this culture of love and safety starts with the husband as head. It takes two to have a good marriage, but the husband, by definition, sets the tone. And when he fails to, he tends towards being authoritarian or abdication from his responsibilities. Authoritarian husbands, of course, make their wives feel unsafe and unloved. They are treated as if their opinions and preferences are secondary at best. A wife in that situation is just trying to survive, becomes her husband's adversary. In our culture right now, we see more abdication from husbands, less authoritarianism. Abdication, not being actively harsh or cruel, just retreating. Retreating from responsibilities, which would make any wife feel unsafe. And as the husband retreats, the wife has to take more responsibility and take charge, which then propels the husband to retreat even more, and the wife takes more responsibility and more charge. This distortion in marriage is what we see in Genesis 2 and 3. Adam abdicates from his priestly responsibility to guard and tend Eden. He leaves it to Eve to debate Satan, the serpent. Adam is physically present. We know that since Eve hands him some of the fruit. But he lets her fight it out with Satan alone. He leaves her all alone to face these lies and temptations. And I'm willing to guess that no one other than Jesus has faced greater temptation than Eve. And Eve, when she needed her husband the most, found that he was absent, silent. And of course, after they get caught, Adam throws Eve under the bus, right? The woman who you made, who you gave to me, took some fruit and gave it to me, and I ate. What should Eve conclude? She should conclude that she is not safe in her marriage and Adam is not a safe husband. So, of course, one of the consequences of sin we are told in Genesis 3.16 is that Eve will desire to control and dominate her husband because she doesn't feel safe and has to take care of herself. Her husband has not loved her well, and she does not respect him. That brings us to verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here, Paul simply summarizing and reiterates his main point. Husbands are to love their wives, and wives are to submit to their husbands, right? No, it doesn't say submit. Isn't that crazy? Paul is bobbing and weaving again. 
He continues to refuse to put the word submit next to the word wife. Instead, he sums up his instruction to wives with the word respect. What is the spirit of wifely submission? Respect. What is the response, the signal from a wife to her husband that she is receiving her husband's attempts to love her sacrificially? Respect. The word respect is used in verse 21 for reverence. Reverence for Christ. It's the same word. Another gloss could be honor. What might wifely submission look like? Honoring the attempts that the husband makes to love her. And oftentimes what happens, what a husband hears back from his wife when he's trying to love her, rather than honor or respect, it might be, it's about time. Or it might be, is that all you got? So much humor in our culture is based on the buffoonish husband married to the pretty, smart, effective woman. It makes no sense why she'd be married to him, right? King of Queens, all these kinds of shows. Goes back for a century. There's all kinds of memes about husbands and how weak and unworthy they are. My favorite, or least favorite, the one that's most offensive to me as a man and husband, is the husband who gets sick. Every wife here knows, particularly if they're moms, that if wife or mom gets sick, the world isn't going to stop for her. She has to push through. But if a husband gets sick, he excuses himself from his duties, and he needs to be babied because men are weak. Right? This is just a part of our culture. In fact, there's a term for it called man flu. It's made the Oxford Dictionary. And this is what it says. A man flu is a cold or similar minor ailment as experienced by a man who is regarded as exaggerating the severity of the symptoms. Another reference called it wimpy man syndrome. Right? This galls me. I find it very galling. But here's the thing. It's been proven wrong. It has been clinically proven that man flu is real. That men experience harsher symptoms during the flu than women do. I saw the report about a year and a half ago, and I was going to post it on our Facebook page. I decided not to because it might cause a stir, but I'm telling you now, man flu is real. And when husbands have the flu, it's okay that they are knocked down and in bed and can't get up. It's true. It's real. So listen, submission slash respect from a, from a wife at least means not trying to control everything in the process communicating to her husband that he is a weak buffoon. But receiving imperfect love and honoring it is risky and vulnerable for wives. It can feel safer and more powerful to tease, diminish, deflect, or ignore. In those cases, a husband oftentimes throws up his hands and concludes, there's no point in trying. And that's not justifiable excuse. A husband has to return and die for his wife. But a marriage where a husband is more and more reluctant to love by dying and where a wife is more and more reluctant to receive and respond to that love becomes an unsafe marriage reduced to a power struggle. A wife's honor and respect can be a powerful thing in a marriage. In our marriage, Aaron from the beginning has told me and communicated implicit trust in me around finances and money. I handle all of it. I do all of it. Pay the bills, everything. Partly because I'm just better at math. But that's not because I'm a man. I'm not better at math because I'm a man. These are just different gift sets. Aaron's better with tools. She's better at hanging things in the house. She can fix things. I'm better at math. But she felt safe to trust me with our money 
and financial decisions. And it's not that I need her trust and respect to have the confidence to do it, but her trust and respect gives me freedom to try and safety if I fail. I want to faithfully engage our finances and not abdicate from them, not abdicate my responsibility. And Aaron's respect and trust in me contributes to both of our flourishing. It's not that every man needs a woman to believe in him or that every woman needs a man to love her. Sometimes it looks that way in movies. There's no amount of imperfect husband love or wifely respect that can make someone feel truly safe. Ultimately, we all have to find our safety and our identity in Christ, and he is sufficient for all of us. But what we see here in Scripture, to have a thriving marriage, a wife needs to believe that her husband puts her first, and a husband needs to know that his wife receives that love, respects, and trusts him. So then, husband and wife, ask each other, do you feel respected? Do you feel loved? Do you feel safe? How might I have made you feel unsafe? Talk about it. Check in frequently. Someone asked this week, what are we supposed to do if we don't think our spouse is attempting to do what Paul commands here? Well, we see here marriage is not about shaming or coercing or commanding. The best we can do is say, hey, I'm not feeling loved. I'm not feeling respected. And if a spouse ignores that multiple times, it's, it's time to get counselors and elders involved. Another question is, do, do I do this no matter what, or only if and when my spouse does it as well? How much should reciprocity matter? Well, spouses are called to love and submission regardless of what the spouse, other spouse is doing which is why it can feel like death. Of course, once we get to emotional abandonment or emotional abuse or other kinds of abuse, the marriage is over without some kind of miraculous intervention. But we submit to each other, we die for each other out of reverence for Christ. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because Jesus loved us first. Because his love is perfect and constant. Because he is completely trustworthy and will never abandon us, we are safe to die for others. And that brings us to the final and quick last point. How do we do it? We need Jesus, right? We need Jesus in order to do marriage right. Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What is the profound mystery? That Christ leaves his heavenly abode, faces alienation from his father, absorbs the curse of sin and death in order to win his bride and be united to her. This union of God the Son with humanity. The point of everything is for all things to be summed up in Christ and the church to be unified with him as his body and rule the cosmos with him. So we, God's people, are caught up in this heavenly dance. We participate in divinity. What a profound mystery. See here, Paul is going over three relational situations, husband, wife, parent, child, master, slave. All three are pictures used throughout Scripture as metaphors for our relationship with God. We are God's son 
sons through Jesus. We are slaves of Christ. But Paul chooses marriage to be the ultimate illustration and picture of God's intention with us. Marriage is where Paul stops to blow our minds and talk about this mystery. A few weeks ago, I noted that the Bible begins with a marriage and ends with a marriage. And here Paul says that marriage is the fundamental analogy for understanding Jesus' work in us and for us. So as husbands live into this role as loving head, and as wives live into the role as submissive body, both functionally looking like death to self, you begin to see a picture or an icon of the mystery hidden for ages, of God the Son uniting with saved humanity. I've begun to see why the Catholic Church calls this a sacrament. I can see how theologians might conclude that believers are especially united to Jesus in marriage. Our tradition, I believe rightly, limits the sacraments to baptism and communion because that's where Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are uniquely and directly available to us. So not every marriage is holy, but based on what Paul is saying here, every marriage has holy potential to mysteriously but truly picture and participate in God's work of redemption. What you are doing when you wake up in the morning wondering how you will die for your spouse is you are inviting God to play out the story of redemption in your house, in your family, today. So you get Jesus as you practice dying for your spouse, regardless of what they're doing for you. And for many of us, that is the spiritual discipline we need most to draw us deeper into Jesus and give us greater knowledge of him. One of my oldest friends years ago I was in a a bad marriage. It was falling apart. And he was a very successful businessman. And one day his co-workers got together and some of his subordinates, and they uh, had this great surprise for him, a great gift and a party just to celebrate him. And he told me at the time, as the surprise was being unveiled, as, as the moment was happening, the only thought through his mind was, why doesn't my wife feel this way about me? Now, maybe that's similar to your situation now. Why doesn't my spouse seem to love me? Or why don't I have a spouse? Whether you're married or not, all followers of Jesus are in a marriage. We are all brides of Christ. He gives his whole self to save and perfect and glorify you. And when he looks at you, he sees you completely. And he sees you as his treasure and true love. He rejoices over you. It's the truth and it sets you free to give your whole self back to him in love. And that looks like death sometimes. Death in singleness, death in marriage. But there is eternal life and glory in being the bride of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you have come and shown us what it is to be our husband, to come and die for us, to take the initiative and save us, and that you are bringing us into glory. We're grateful for this truth, and we ask that you would help us to believe that, and then let this truth impact every aspect of our lives, how we go about our days, and particularly how we live in relationship. 
And for those of us who are married here, I pray that you would teach us how to die for our spouses, how to love, how to submit, how to seek each other's flourishing and glory. We pray that our marriages would be statements, pictures, icons of your love for us, and it would teach us how much you love us and what you are doing for us. Please accomplish this in us now by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.